A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianath. O Lord, I've heard the report of you in your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I sought the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You thrust the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trembled the seas with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fields, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. This is the word of the Lord. you to keep your Bibles open to Habakkuk 3, and let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have made yourself known to us in creation, in your mighty works, but especially in your word open before us, which points us to the living word, Jesus Christ. 
Lord, would we see you this morning and would we hear you, but we confess we need your spirit for that to happen. And so be with us by your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Advent is a season of waiting. That's what we have mentioned every time we've lit a candle this season. That's what we've talked about in each of the sermons so far. It's a season marked by waiting and hopeful expectation. For children, that waiting often takes the shape of waiting for Christmas morning and the opening of presents. The anticipation and the build-up, you know, you see the, the gifts at the bottom of the tree and then some of the kids will go over and start kind of picking them up and shaking them, trying to figure out what's inside, just curious for a show of hands, how many of you children have tried to trick your parents into telling what they got you this year? I should be seeing a few more hands in the front row. So the waiting is really hard to do, right? It's it's hard to do. And while all of the attention uh, to receiving gifts that we find today, while all of that attention to receiving gifts is a bit foreign to the original idea of of Christmas, the posture of waiting for something special, that is right at home in the Advent season, waiting for something special. Ancient Israel spent centuries waiting for God to fulfill his promise, the gift of his son. So from the earliest hint in the garden that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent to the the promise of a king who would sit on David's throne forever, Israel waited. They waited through both joy and hardship. They waited through slavery and freedom, through rescue and exile, through glory and through shame. And in a very similar way, more similar than we often will realize, so we wait today. Not for Christ's first coming, the the story that we rehearse through this season, but we wait, as Dave prayed earlier, we wait for his second coming, for his return when he will make all things new. The day when sin will be no more, when suffering and sorrow will be banished from existence, and Christ will be all in all forever. That's the day we wait for. And that deeper sense of waiting is often lost in our modern experiences of Christmas. Betsy Childs Howard offers some insightful reflections on this. She writes that the waiting that comes with Advent is fun because it's finite. We know what's coming at the end of our wait will be good, and we know exactly how many days we have left to wait for it. Just one more. But much of the waiting that occupies our lives is open-ended. We wait for love and marriage without knowing if it will come. We wait for children without knowing whether we will conceive. We wait for justice. We wait for healing. The hardest thing about waiting is not knowing when it's going to end, if it's going to end. Waiting brings questions without easy answers. If your life's plans aren't coming to fruition, should you change course or hold out for your heart's desire? 
Are your unfulfilled yearnings indicators of sinful discontent? Or blessings God simply hasn't yet fulfilled? Life in a fallen world is full of waiting. But what does it look like to wait well? What does it look like to wait well? That brings us to the third chapter of Habakkuk. Over the last couple of weeks, we have uh, looked at the first two chapters of Habakkuk, which contain the oracle that Habakkuk saw, an oracle that took the shape of a dialogue between the prophet and God. Habakkuk was a, a prophet in Judah who served probably close to the end of the 7th century uh, in the southern kingdom of Israel, uh, right before they were destroyed by Babylon. And, and Habakkuk began his conversation with the Lord by lamenting over the rampant injustice and wickedness of God's people Judah. The law was broken. Their covenant wasn't working. Israel wasn't keeping their end of the deal to love the Lord and walk in justice and, and righteousness. And it didn't feel like God was keeping his end of the deal because he wasn't doing anything about it. He wasn't trying to stop them. He wasn't trying to correct them or to rescue the righteous. And so Habakkuk cries out to the Lord, how long till you do something about this? God then answered in 1, 5 through 11, but his answer was utterly astounding. He was going to do something about Judah's wickedness by sending the most wicked and unjust nation in the ancient world to judge them, the nation of Babylon, who would consume God's covenant people. That was not what Habakkuk was expecting or looking for. And so he cries out to God a second time in the end of chapter 1. And, and he acknowledges the judgment part. He gets that, that by sending Babylon, God is keeping his word to deal with the injustice among Judah. He gets that part. But what he doesn't get is how God's own justice could be upheld if Babylon, who's even worse than Judah, gets away with this. How does that work? And so last week we saw God's answer to that second complaint. He gave Habakkuk a vision, a vision of the end, not a vision of what he was going to do in Habakkuk's day, but of what he would do in the end. Because knowing how something's going to end changes the way we live in the present. And so he gave Habakkuk this long-term perspective, a perspective to fuel his perseverance. He promised to bring evil nations like Babylon to justice in the end and to protect his people and fulfill his covenant promises to them, that the righteous will live by faith. That was God's promise. But what do you do with a promise that waits till the end? What do you do? Especially when you're hurting and it doesn't feel like you can hold on much longer. And God's answer is not that he's going to get you out of this hard situation, but that he will make everything right someday. That was his answer to Habakkuk. He's going to make everything right someday. Well, what if I don't want to wait till someday? Someday sounds like a really long time. I want God's answer now. And, and when he doesn't answer now, when we're forced to wait, as we often are in this life, Wait for healing, wait for help, wait for hope. When we're forced to wait, it's tempting to just give up on the Lord 
or to give way to our fears and be consumed by the sorrow of our circumstances. And it would have been really easy for Habakkuk to respond that way. That, that answer was, again, not what he was looking for. But he doesn't respond with that, with sorrow or, or with uh, despair. Instead, as we look at chapter 3, we find that the Lord's oracle is followed by Habakkuk's prayer. He responds to God with prayer. And in his response, I think we see what it looks like to wait well for God. To wait specifically with prayer, with confidence, and with joy for the Lord. And so first we wait with prayer. Chapter 3, verse 1. That's what Habakkuk is doing here. And this prayer takes the shape of a psalm. I think if you were to flip open to Habakkuk chapter 3 and not look at the top of the page to see what book you were in, you would assume that you were in the Psalms. I mean, it's, it's structure and poetry, the use of technical terms like oath, whatever that means, or selah, or to the choir master with stringed instruments. That's Psalms territory. And all of a sudden, here we are in a prophet ending with a psalm. But that psalm is a prayer. This is the prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And he lays out his request right up front in verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So back in chapter 1, God spoke of a work that he was going to do in Habakkuk's day. A work he wouldn't believe if told. A work of judgment and purging of God's people. But that's not the only kind of work that the Lord does. Habakkuk has heard another report, another aspect of God's reputation. He's heard about God's work of delivering his people, his covenant people. He's heard that report and he fears it. He stands in awe of God of who he is and what he's done, and he prays that God would do it again. In the midst of years, in our time, Lord, revive it. In our time, make it known. As you pour out your wrath on Babylon like you promise, remember mercy for your people. Remember mercy. And what I find most remarkable about Habakkuk's prayer is that God just promised in chapter 2 that he was going to answer the issue in the end. He promised to do something in the end. When the Lord returns and, and all of his promises are complete, his justice will be established on earth as it is in heaven. He received a promise for the end, but that doesn't stop Habakkuk from asking God to do something today. Trusting God to answer his promises in the end doesn't mean we don't also plead with him to do something in the meantime. And that's what we see him doing. Waiting for the Lord to act is not a passive resignation to the status quo. I guess I just have to sit here and do nothing till God shows up. Habakkuk is waiting, but he's waiting with prayer. He's continuing to plead with God to do something. And that prayer 
is guided by his confidence in God's reputation. He waits not just with prayer, but with confidence. And that brings us to the second point. We wait with confidence. Now, many of you know that I have a bit of a reputation for being late to things. It may come as a shock to some of you who've never had an appointment with me and experienced my tardiness firsthand, but you can talk to my wife, who's not even smiling at this joke. <laughs> I, I have a bit of a reputation. Um, it's so predictable that whenever I have a meeting with my friend Jay Ridenauer, who's the pastor over at First Baptist Church in Sudbury, if our meeting is at 10 o'clock, I will receive a text at 10 a.m. exactly saying, you're late. (laughs) He's so confident in my lateness that he literally sits there with his phone ready to hit send at precisely 10 o'clock just so he can rib me about it. Well, in a similar but not at all similar way, God has a reputation. It's one quite different from mine. And Habakkuk is able to wait with confidence because he knows God's reputation. He anchors his prayer in God's reputation of what he has done in the past. And he actually reviews that reputation in verses 3 to 15, whether to remind himself of who God is and and so kind of bolster his own confidence, or perhaps to even attempt to remind God of who he is so that, you know, you've done this before. You can do this again, Lord. And And this reminder or this review of God's reputation takes the shape of a highly symbolic poem of God as the great divine warrior. The great divine warrior. It's a common motif in the Old Testament. This picture of God setting out from his camp, maybe a a mountain like Paran or Seir or Sinai or even heaven itself, and the whole cosmos reacting and convulsing as he marches onward to destroy his enemies and save his people. It's a common motif in the Old Testament. You can find examples in Exodus 15 or Deuteronomy 33 or Judges 5 or Psalm 18 or Psalm 68. There's lots of examples. And that's what we find here, this bracing portrait of God's sovereign authority and blinding power over all creation over all nations as the divine warrior who comes out to defend his name and rescue his people. In verse 3, he sets out from camp. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. And as he sets out, you see the, the brilliance and the universal scope of his majesty and power. He, he comes out of his tent and his light fills the entire creation. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. And yet in his power, he has come to judge. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. His very gaze shakes the earth and its inhabitants. He stood and he measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. All he had to do was look at them, and they shook, they trembled. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low, his were the everlasting ways. Creation writhes at his presence, and the nations quake 
I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. The mighty warrior is on the march. But what is this poem really about? Uh, The convulsing of creation, the mountains being scattered. Uh, What is this really a picture of? In verse 8, Habakkuk switches gears to begin to kind of explain the imagery. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? Is the point of this poem that God is angry at his creation? No. No, that's imagery. Imagery that's probably meant to remind us of God's judgment on Egypt with the ten plagues back in Exodus, where God turns his creation uh, upside down. Did, Did he split the Red Sea because he was mad at the water? No. No. He came to judge sin and deliver his people. That's the emphasis. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. It's like, picture when the Red Sea standing up in place. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Look at middle of verse 13. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So all of this uh, breathtaking imagery of cosmic turbulence, the creation kind of convulsing, it's meant to illustrate the magnitude of God's holiness and power when he acts to establish justice. That's what he's doing. The divine warrior has come to judge sin. But in judging sin, he is at the very same time, through the very same act, also rescuing his people. The chariot he rides on with which to strike down the nations is his chariot of salvation, in verse 8. Or you look again at verse 12. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. That's why you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. The divine warrior's zeal in judging the nations is fueled by a love for his people. It's fueled by a love for his people whom the nations are trying to devour. If you see someone picking on your child or trying to take advantage of your child or even worse, trying to harm your child, what do you do? If you love them, you act. Maybe not with violence. There's, there's lots of ways to act. God is the eternal judge. But if you love them, you act. You act for their protection and their deliverance. Your love compels you to do something about it and not just stand by while someone takes advantage of them. 
And so the divine warrior here is not some kind of incredible Hulk rage monster who just goes around destroying stuff because. He is a passionate and powerful father and a sovereign, holy, and unparalleled king who alone deserves the worship of the nations. And, and this portrait of the divine warrior, this is not Habakkuk's wishful thinking. This is not like, hey, wouldn't it be great, Lord, if you did if you were more like this, or nor is it him trying to kind of flatter God into acting. This is God's reputation. This is who he is and how he has been made known, how he has revealed himself based on what he's done in the past. Coming down from heaven to rescue his people Israel out of slavery through signs and wonders and great acts of judgment, splitting the Jordan, going before his people to conquer the idolatrous inhabitants of the land, reaching down from heaven to deliver David out of the grips of Saul. This is who he is. This is what he does. And because of that, because of that reputation, Habakkuk prays with confidence. This is the kind of God we serve. He has confidence that God will live up to his reputation. And because he waits with confidence, he is able, even amid excruciating circumstances, he's able to wait for the Lord with joy. He's able to wait for the Lord with joy. And that's the third point. We wait with prayer, we wait with confidence, and we wait with joy. And when we talk about waiting with joy, we're not talking about pretending that things aren't as bad as they are, or or simply trying to put a good face on it all. Uh, Rejoicing in the midst of suffering is not some kind of mind-over-matter self-delusion. If I just think it's okay, I'll feel okay. There's nothing okay about Habakkuk's situation. He remains terrified. If you look at verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. He is under no false impressions about his situation. But he knows that there's something at work above and beyond his situation. And that's what he's putting his confidence in. That's what he's putting his confidence in. His, his body may be convulsing in terror as Babylon approaches the gates of Jerusalem, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I will trust God that this is not the end of the story that he will live up to his reputation. And in him, not in my situation, but in him, I will rejoice. He will wait with joy. And, and look at the declaration of joy, verse 17. This is mind-blowing. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. 
He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Imagine if Habakkuk's joy was contingent on his situation. That his joy, his delight, his contentment and and delight in life was contingent on the circumstances that he's in. Even if he survives Babylon's raid after they sweep through the land in violence and take up all of their captives and move on to the next victim, even if he survives the raid, after the dust settles and it's safe to go out again, when he goes out to the stalls, his eyes will confirm what his ears already told him. There's nothing left in there. No sheep, no cattle, no goats. When he goes out to the hills, he will walk row after row of barren and broken trees. No fruit, no olives. When he goes out to his fields, they will lay trampled before him, nothing able to grow. What would it look like if his joy was contingent on that situation? There would be no joy. There would be no joy. There would be only despair or anger or fury or desperation. And so how do you explain verses 17 and 19? How can he rejoice in such a desperate situation? How can he wait with joy? How can we rejoice in horrible circumstances? Things we wouldn't wish on our worst enemy. And we're stuck in them. How can we wait with joy when God's promises seem so far off? The only way to rejoice in the midst of a horrible situation is if our joy is in the Lord Himself. In the Lord Himself. Not in our situation, not in our circumstances, not even in what God gives us or what God does for us, because what He gives and does might be delayed. Only when our joy is in the Lord Himself is a persistent joy possible. A joy that, that surpasses suffering, that transcends our circumstances. A joy that is fixed on our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul, later on, is talking about when he commands the church in Philippi in his letter over and over again to rejoice in the Lord. Remember how Philippians, he says that all the time, rejoice in the Lord? He's not just talking about some generic happy attitude. He's saying, put your joy in the Lord Jesus. And if you do that, your circumstances are no longer going to dictate your happiness in Christ. It's a joy that triumphs even if Paul's imprisonment for the gospel were to end in death. He says in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's nothing they can take away from me, not if my joy is in Jesus. It's a joy that taught him how to be content in any circumstance in life. He says in chapter 4, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. 
In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul found a joy rooted in something bigger than his circumstances, bigger than his trials, a joy rooted in Jesus. And he summarizes it beautifully in chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. When our joy is in the Lord, not in our situation, but in God himself, when we treasure Christ above all things, we can wait for God with joy. There's nothing more valuable and there is no victory more sure. And we can wait with joy because we have confidence that he is the divine warrior, our savior and king who has rent the heavens and come down to us in Christ. Have you ever wondered why the gospel writers chose to tell us about some miracles of Jesus and not others? John tells us that there was no way for him, for the gospel writers, to tell us everything he did. You know, were every one of them to be written down, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So so why do the gospel writers focus on the miracles that they did? Lots of reasons. But one of the reasons was to help us connect the dots between the identity of Jesus and the identity of God in the Old Testament. To see the connection. Think about the divine warrior, for instance. When Jesus walked on the sea in Matthew 14, he was doing what the divine warrior does in the Old Testament. Job 9.8 God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And and so as the apostles see Jesus walking on the water, doing something that the divine warrior does in the Old Testament, how do they respond? Peter's reaction, Matthew 14, 33, truly you are the son of God. That's how they responded. Or you think of his crucifixion in Matthew 27, when the earth shook and the rocks were split, And we hear that story all the time. But guess who shakes the earth and splits the rocks in the Old Testament? The divine warrior. And guess how the centurion reacts at the crucifixion of Christ when he saw the earth quake and what took place. He says, truly this was the Son of God. They recognized in Jesus the divine warrior of the Old Testament. He is the divine warrior incarnate. Though he didn't look like a warrior when he arrived. You know, we don't, that's not the most 
uh, immediate metaphor that comes to our mind when we think of the little baby lying in the manger, right? The conquering hero. That's what Israel wanted. Part of why some of them missed out on who Jesus was. They wanted a Habakkuk three mighty warrior to overturn the nations and strike down their enemies. Instead, they get this helpless, vulnerable infant who became familiar with their griefs and intimate with their suffering. They ended up with a conquering king who rescued his people not by slaying his enemies with a sword, but by dying for his enemies on the cross. Dying for us. Because all who've turned their back on God end up as enemies of God. He dies for his enemies, laying his life down. But conquer, he did. When he rose from the grave, he conquered death, not by avoiding it or going around it, but by plunging headlong into it for us. That's our conquering hero. That he might destroy death once and for all. And this great warrior is coming again. And this time no one will miss him. He will come in the true divine warrior style, rending the sky with the armies of heaven at his heels, a sharp sword from his mouth with which to strike down the nations. He comes out for the salvation of his people, for the salvation of his anointed, and he will crush the head of the serpent once and for all, casting him into the lake of fire forever. That's how the story ends. And in that day, all of the promises of God will be finally and forever true. We will worship in his presence. We will feast at his table. We will rejoice in him forever, free from sin, free from pain, free from all of the evil of this world. We will be happy in Jesus forever. And that's what we're ultimately waiting for every Christmas, even if we don't realize it. Every one of us. Again, to quote Betsy Howard, during Advent, we not only remember that Jesus came to earth as man, we also prepare our hearts for his second coming. When we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we're not role-playing what ancient Israelites must have prayed before the coming of the Messiah. No, we are praying that Emmanuel would return and make right all that's wrong in this world. When we sing, let every heart prepare him room, we're not retroactively chastising the innkeepers of Bethlehem. We are preaching to all souls within earshot to be ready to meet their judge and maker unafraid. This life is not our only shot at happiness. It is a brief prelude to the life to come where we will find pleasures evermore. In the presence of Jesus, we will not regret anything we lacked in this life. Think about that. In the presence of Jesus, we will not regret anything that we lacked in this life. If your heart is heavier than you'd like this Advent season, take heart that the joys of Christmas aren't ultimately what you wait for. The best Christmas on earth, one in which every 
family member sits around the table, speaks sweetly to everyone else, and prefers giving to receiving, the best Christmas on earth is a pale shadow of the rejoicing yet to come. And so we wait. We wait with prayer, with confidence, and with joy for our Lord Jesus to come. Let's pray. Lord, we wait for you. And we wait with prayer, asking you to come again, Lord. Asking you even before you come to take your promises of the end and to break into the present with them. We wait with confidence, Lord, as we look back on what you did in your first advent. You kept your word to Israel. We celebrate that today, tomorrow. And so, Lord, we wait with confidence in what you've done in the past that you will do it again in the future. And we wait with joy. God, we wait with a joy that comes not from what's under the tree, not what's from in the checking account, not what's, uh, what we're going to experience gathered around a table or sitting at home alone. We wait with a joy that comes from Jesus, our Savior and King, our divine warrior and our gentle shepherd. And we praise you that he is ours through faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.